you brought your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, and we'll begin reading there in just a moment in verse 25. Matthew 11 and verse 25. These verses that we're going to look at this morning, we're actually going to be studying for several weeks. In verses 28 through 30, especially in the passage that we're going to read, Jesus describes the life that God wants you to have, that he wants every Christian to have, ultimately that he wants every person to have. And yet many don't have it. They're not experiencing it. And maybe you're a disappointed Christian this morning because you've been a Christian a while and you hear the sermons and you've sat through the Bible studies and you've heard what the Christian life ought to be and that's not been your experience and you feel you're missing something and there should be more and you're disappointed. Or perhaps you're a depressed Christian because you've heard what you ought to be and you've tried to be those things. You've worked at it, you've applied yourself, you've read, you've studied, you've come and sat through the sermons and the Bible studies, and you feel depressed. In fact, you may have come to a place where you've given up, and you just sort of have uh, sat back and said, well, this is just the way it's going to be. Uh, it's not going to change. It's not going to be better. And so you hear the descriptions of what following Christ should be like, what the experience should be like. But you're depressed because that's not your experience. Or maybe this morning you're a non-Christian. And you've stopped exploring Christianity because of all the disappointed and depressed Christians that you've met. And you say, well, if that's what it means to follow Christ, they're no different than I am. They act like I do. They do what I do. They don't seem to have anything special that I don't have. And so you have come to a place where you've stopped exploring Christ, for the next few weeks as we study this passage, the title of the series, as I'm calling it, is More to Life. There is more to life than what you and I have known without Christ. And with Christ, there's so much more. And in this passage of Scripture, he is describing for you and me the kind of life that he's always intended for every person here, every human being. And he also describes for us how you and I can live that life, how we can enter into that Christian life that has been described. So we want to begin reading verses 25. Verse 25, we're going to read to the end of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, if you read back early in the chapter, he's being rejected. He's being rejected by whole cities and towns of people. He's performed miracles. He's taught the truth, but he's being rejected. They've not accepted him. And so at this moment, in verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And right away, the way he describes God, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He, he's Lord of everything. There's no place you can go in the universe where he is not the Lord. And so he starts out calling him that, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things. What? The gospel that he's been preaching. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. And immediately we realize at that point that knowing God 
is not an academic exercise. It's not about studying a long time, going to school, accumulating degrees, reading a lot of books. It's not accumulating a lot of intellectual assumptions about who God is. It's not something you can acquire through your reason. It's something that can be revealed to you, though. And Jesus says, I thank you that the people who are the academicians and the brilliant people and the intellectuals, they didn't get it. But you reveal yourself to the people who are just simple, ordinary people. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Now remember, he's the one who's Lord of heaven and earth. So he says, the one who's Lord of heaven and earth, he's delivered all things to me. And so now Jesus possesses what the Father possesses. That's what he's saying. Been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. All these other people are rejecting him. But the Father knows who he is. And that's enough for him. But then he says, nor does anyone know the Father except, and he mentions two people. There are only two people who know who God is. No, anyone, nor does anyone know the Father except first the Son and secondly the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Only two people on the earth know the Father. Jesus and the person that Jesus reveals the Father to. And so it's at that moment that Jesus issues this amazing invitation, come to me. And that's going to be the phrase we're going to focus on today. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I was growing up, it was interesting, I walked in with this yardstick this morning, and every adult that saw me with the yardstick said the same thing, am I in trouble? <laughs> every adult. I walked by a group of kids, and uh, half of them said, what's that? And the other half said, I know what that is. What is it? Well, that's a yardstick, 36 inches long, use it to measure things. None of them had any fear of the yardstick. That may be an issue. Just food for thought. But when I was a kid growing up, aside from uh, a disciplinary value of the yardstick, when I was, you know, four years old, going on five, five going on six, six going on seven, one of the things we would do periodically once a month, every two or three months, is I would go stand in a doorway in a house. You know this. I'd go stand in the doorway in the house, and, and uh, my mother would take a yardstick or a ruler and would would stick it right there so that the tip hit the post. You remember that? And would take her pencil, would draw a little line right there on the post, and then would step away, and then she'd measure from that line down to the floor and write a little note, a little date on there. How many of y'all got places like that in your house? A few of you still do. And we, and we did that because we were, it was important to grow up. It was all, it was exciting to get taller. Uh, now I just get wider. But back then it was exciting to be taller because God intends that babies grow and young boys and girls grow and that people grow up. Well, he has the same intention spiritually. When you and I are born again, we become a new creature, a babe in Christ. And his, his intent, because he's put this new life in you and me, 
that we would grow, that we would mature. Plants grow, trees grow, babies grow, new Christians are supposed to grow. That's his intent, desire for us. Immaturity, when something doesn't grow, it's tragic, it's disturbing, it's not supposed to be that way. And when someone has been 20 years a Christian, 40 years a Christian, 50 years a Christian, and they've not grown, it is tragic because the Father is pleased when we grow. He wants you and me to grow. In 2 Peter 3.18, the very last verse of 2 Peter, just listen to this phrase. It's actually a command. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But grow, last thing he says, end of his letter, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What grace? Well, the grace that belongs to Jesus. What does grace mean? Grace means favor that we don't deserve, unmerited favor. The Son of God has complete unmerited favor before the Father. Why? Because everything he does, he does for the Father, the Father's direction. Everything he speaks, he speaks because the Father has led him. Jesus is completely obedient, dependent on the Father. And because of that, he has grace. And he says to you and me, grow in that grace grow in that grace. And not just grow in that grace, that favor of God, because you are more and more coming in line with what God is directing you to be and do. But he says, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's not the word for factual knowledge. It's the word for experiential knowledge. Grow in your experience of Jesus Christ, he says. Grow in this relationship. And so that's, that's what pleases the Father is when you and I as believers, as Christians who have been born again, do not stay where we are, but we are growing. We are changing. It's a command to grow in grace and knowledge. So because it is a command, I know that growth is not automatic. Have you ever seen pictures of children and adults in other countries, sometimes even in our country, who are starving? Their faces are sunken, their eyes are sunken, their abdomens are distended, they look terrible. Are they alive? Yes. Are they healthy? No. Are they growing? No. I wonder how old some of us really are in the Lord. I'm not asking how long have you been a Christian? But how old are you in the Lord? If the father were to come and take out his measuring stick, you know, and say, stand here, let me measure how much you've grown. What would that look like in your life? In Psalm 92, you can just jot this down on the side. Psalm 92, let me just pull it up here. Pull it up on my, my material Bible here. Psalm 92, he wants you to grow. The righteous, Psalm 92, verse 12 to 14, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Now listen to this. 
They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. I thank the Lord that I have the privilege of pastoring in the church where we have some older adults who are flourishing, whose hearts are tender towards the Lord. We have some senior adults who haven't even known Christ all that long. They came to know Christ later in life, and their hearts are tender, and they are flourishing. Is that what's happening in your heart? You see, our bodies get old and get tired and wear out. But if you're a Christian, God intends that your spirit always be alive, always be growing, always be flourishing, always be fresh. Or is your soul dry and hard? And if the truth were known, you're not green, you're not alive, and you're not growing. In verse 28, Jesus explains where a person has to begin. If they're going to enter or re-enter the life that he has in mind for you and me. He tells us where we have to begin. What does Jesus mean? We're going to take the first phrase. What does Jesus mean when he says, come to me? First, he's saying that you're missing something. You're missing something. I mean, the very implication where he says, come to me, is implying that you are missing something. And do you feel that? If you're not growing, you should feel that you're missing something. You should feel a lack. I talked about the the press Christian who's who's frustrated because they're not growing. They're not experiencing what they, they believe that the Bible describes. And I hope that that if that's where you are, that you are frustrated, that you haven't given up, that you haven't you haven't quit. You say, Don, I've tried to change. I've tried to stop this sin habit that's in my life. I can't seem to overcome the smallest sin in my life. I'm thinking I can't ever change. And I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to give up. And yet Jesus says, come to me. And, and so it's okay to recognize that something is missing. So what does Jesus mean when he says, come to me? First, he's saying that you're missing something. If you feel that, that's the power of the invitation. But secondly, he's saying you cannot stay where you are. If you're going to come to me, the the scriptures literally says, come towards me, come to me, then you can't stay where you are. He's saying that you have to move away from your current position. When we moved to Wynn, Arkansas, almost two years ago, uh, we loaded up a truck. We had a mover. And we packed up our things. And we left where we were, but we came here. And then we unpacked our stuff. And so we had these familiar things around us, things that we used to have where we were. And now we have them here, familiar stuff. That's not the kind of move that I'm talking about. 
When I say that you can't stay where you are, nothing else can come with you. The kind of transformation or move that he's talking about when he says, come to me, and you can't stay where you are, is much more like what happens when a relationship with someone is broken and a new relationship is formed. I don't know about you, but my dating life in high school was a disaster. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on whether your dating experience was a disaster. Mine was a disaster. And, um, and you know what it's like when, when people break up. Two people break up. You naturally try to avoid the other person. You avoid the places where you used to hang out. In some cases, you can't even have the same friends anymore because you shared those friends. And you can't have those friends anymore. But there comes a point where you put it behind you and you move on. And then someone new comes along. And he or she is amazing. And at that point, you completely let go of the old relationship because you have moved to a new relationship. And so when Jesus says, come to me, come towards me, he's not saying, okay, pick up all your stuff, the way that you've been doing your life, your attitudes, your thoughts, and everything that you thought you understood about me, bring all of that with you and come to me. He says, leave it right there. Come to me. Come to me. And you cannot stay where you are. That's why Jesus is saying you can't hold on to your old things. How many Christians do you know who never seem to change and get better? When a person becomes a Christian, they're supposed to change. You know that, don't you? We're supposed to change. There's a transformation that's supposed to happen to you and me. Not because you become suddenly this keeper of all the rules, but because you have this new person in your life, in your heart, and he is there, and he has all the grace and the favor of God on him. And he knows everything about you. And he knows what God has for you. And he lives right here. How can Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, live inside a person and they just stay the same? He says, come to me. But when you come to me, you can't stay where you are. You can't go 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It's not okay to never change and just say, well, that's just the way I am. No, you can't do that. So what does Jesus mean when he says, come to me? First, he is telling you that you are missing something. Secondly, he's saying you cannot stay where you are. But he's also telling you, thirdly, you need him. You need him. Some, some people think that being a Christian is all about what you believe in the church that you attend. And you should know this already, but you can believe the right things and even attend the most wonderful church and miss the life that God has in mind for you. You're not coming to a system of religious belief. You're not coming to a denomination when you come to Christ. You're not coming to an organized thing. You're coming to a person 
Out west years ago, I worked with two different groups of people that were often considered hard to reach. And I didn't look to be a part of it, but I experienced it. One was working with homosexuals in the gay community in West Hollywood. The other were gamblers, high-stakes poker players who would descend on Las Vegas three times a year for major tournaments. And when I would talk about that occasionally and tell some of those stories, people would say, what did you say to them? What did you say to them to make them change? How did you talk to them or convince them that gambling was wrong or that homosexuality was not of God? How did you, how did you teach them that? How did you show them that? I didn't tell them that. Why is a sinner a sinner? Why is a sinner a sinner? You say, well, they're a sinner because they're a sinner. <laughs> it's their nature to sin. Yes, but why is it their nature to sin? Why is it their nature to sin? Isn't, the, isn't it their nature to sin because God is completely absent from their life? I mean, it's the oldest lie of Satan. The first lie, the oldest lie, in the Garden of Eden, he comes to Eve, didn't God say you could eat of every tree of the garden? She, she corrects him on that. And then he says, but, but you're not going to die. God's lying. He knows that if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. You don't need God, Eve. God's holding out on you. You can do a better job with your life than God is. It's the oldest lie. That you can do life without him. You know, there's Christians who are living that lie. They're going along, getting up in the morning. Don't pray. Don't say a word to him. Why? Because I don't need him in my life today. We just go on. We don't lean. We don't seek. We don't depend. And consequently, we have succumbed to the same lie as people who don't even know God at all. You cannot live life without him. You never could. It was why you were lost, and now as a Christian, it's how you are to live. The indwelling Christ, living his life in you and through you, meeting every circumstance, meeting every need, every problem. Christ in you, meeting those things. And so what was my goal when I talked to a guy who was addicted to gambling or who had hundreds of anonymous relationships a year as a homosexual male? What did I talked to him about? I talked to them about Jesus. Because I knew if they could meet Jesus, if they could come and meet him, he would take care of the rest. And he always does. It may take a while, but he does. Our greatest weakness, our greatest fault, our greatest problem is we try to do life without him. You need him. I don't care who you are, man, woman, boy, girl, saved, not saved, Christian a long time, you're a homosexual, a gambler, a, a gay person, a well-respected church member, you need Christ just the same. We all need him. So he invites you this morning to a direct, unfiltered, unmediated relationship with him. You don't need a preacher, you don't need a priest, you don't need a church, you don't need those things coming between you and him. He says, come to me. Come to me. 
So what does he mean when he says, come to me? He says that obviously that means you're missing something. Obviously, it means you cannot stay where you are. Obviously, it means you need him. He believed that. He said that. You need him. But finally, it means you have a choice. It means you have a choice. It's up to you whether you come or you don't come to him. If you're a Christian, it's up to you every day. Am I going to come to Jesus and lean on him for life? If I'm not a Christian, it's up to you. Am I going to come to Christ and find life? You know, one of the questions that people have always, the number one theological question of the ages, if God is in control, if God is good, God is love, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? The very first work of Christian theology was written by a man, Clement of Alexandria, late in the second century, and it was an effort to answer Gnostics who were asking that question. If God is in control, if God is good, how can there be so much pain and suffering in the world? The Gnostic answer was, well, there's two gods, a big one and a little one. The little one came and messed everything up. He's the God of the Old Testament. The big one, he's trying to fix everything. He's the one represented in Jesus Christ. I mean, they had this whole made-up mythology about who God is. That was their way. It was such an important question to them, so difficult to them, that that was the only answer. Pain and suffering is responsible by one God, and all the good things are, are the result of the other God. One was a creator. He messed up. The other was a redeemer. He's fixing it. And Clement responded, And let me give you a simple answer to a very tough question. If God loves you and there's so much power that he possesses, there's no power that he doesn't possess. If he is so big, so great, so loving, so wonderful, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Because he loves you so much that he gave you a gift, and that gift is called choice. Choice. Adam and Eve had the gift of choice. Now, why did God give us choice? So that when he says, come to me, you can come to him because you choose to or because you choose not to. He gave it to Adam and Eve. He didn't make them in some kind of mechanical robots, and he he made them so that, okay, I'm going to make you so that you have to love me. Would you want to marry a man or a woman? You just flip a switch at the altar, now they love you? Now, don't answer that. Because the whole time you're in a relationship with someone who loves you because you made them love you, you're going to know that, that they didn't love you because they chose to. They didn't love you because they chose to. They loved you because you made them love you. That's not real. That's not life. And so God gave human beings a choice. And as a consequence of that choice, mankind's sin, humanity was plunged into sin. And the consequences of sin is what happens to you and me when we are living life apart from him. Everything goes awry. Everything goes out of control. Everything is broken. I can't do anything right without him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you have a choice. Every day, this moment, you have a choice. Jesus says, come to me. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that choice? What have you been doing with that choice? 
The Father loves you so much he sent Jesus Christ to deal with the consequences, the penalty, the power, the very issue of sin in your life. He sends Jesus, and he died on the cross for your sins, an excruciating, unspeakable, indescribable death for you, taking your sin on himself, the consequences of all your wrong choices, the consequences of you pushing God out of your life. He took all of that hateful stuff that you caused onto himself, and the Father punished Jesus as if he was responsible for those things. And the sinless, sweet Son of God died for you. And as we celebrated last week, to prove your sins could be forgiven, it says in the end of Romans 4, he was raised for our justification, meaning he was brought up from the dead as proof that our sins could be forgiven. And he says, come to me. You need forgiveness, come to me. Come to me. You want to know God? (laughs) Come to me, he says. Come. Christian, the Christian life is an event when you trust him, but it's supposed to be followed by a process. It's an experience when you trust him, but it's supposed to be followed by a relationship. It is a step that you take, the very first step, to trust Jesus Christ, but it's supposed to be followed by a walk where you take another step and another step and another step. And the tragedy is there are many Christians who've had the event, they've had the experience, and they had the step, but they've not gone on to maturity. They're not walking by faith. They're not in a relationship with Jesus. They're not in a process of growth. If that describes you today, I want to encourage you, choose Christ. He says, come to me, come to me. You say, my life is is out of order, I've gotten off track, pastor, I'm not growing in Christ, I'm confused and I, I don't know where to begin. Here's where you start, he says, come to me, come to him. Say, Jesus, here I am. I'm moving from where I am, leaving everything behind. I know that doesn't work, hasn't worked for me so far. And I'm coming to you. And I want you to teach me, show me, give me that life that you describe. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at that in more detail. This is where it starts. This is where you and I begin. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. Would you take just a moment to reflect before we stand and sing and have a time of response? Our response time in this church is is an opportunity to express yourself to him. We sing a song, and that's kind of a default way to express yourself to him. How has God spoken to you? And the words of the song sometimes capture that, and you can sing that. But you may need to just bow your head when we stand and sing, and and just talk to the Lord. You say, Lord, that, that was me. I'm that disappointed Christian. I'm that depressed Christian. My walk with you has been derailed, and I want to come back to you. I want to grow, Lord. I want to be like a baby again who is thirsty for his mother's milk. I want to crave the, the word that you speak because I know it's true.
tired. And I want the real thing. I want to know you. And so, Jesus, I want to come to you. Whatever that means, I want to come to you. I want to come to you every day. And you may need to talk to him about that. And settle in your heart that you're, you're not going to stay where you are. That you're not going to settle for anything less than the life that he has for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, his invitation is especially for you. Come to me. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you'll not confess me, if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. A public confession of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. It's important to take a stand and say right here, I am trusting you, Jesus, with my whole life to save me. I'm surrendering to you. I'm giving you me. And I'm turning from my life without you. And I'm turning to you. That's repentance. If this morning you want to put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come. I'll be down here at the front. I'll be happy to counsel with you, talk with you. There are others here also who can answer your questions. The altar is open. If you have a burden, this is also a prayer time. And your heart is heavy, you're weighted down by something, and you just need to get up and come and pray for a few moments down front. That's fine. If you need one of us to pray with you, just grab us. We'll do that. Our Father and our God, thank you, Lord, for this awesome, refreshing, glorious invitation to come to you. And it never gets old. And it's always there. And we are thankful. Father, I pray for that one today who wants to accept that invitation and who's accepting it right now. Father, give them a great sense of your pleasure in their life, of your fullness. Answer their cry for more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.